Well, brothers and sisters, this morning as we finish our study of uh, Psalm 11, we arrive at the last verse, verse 7, which again says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. To begin with, perhaps you can hear uh, that this one verse uh, presents us with uh, three points uh, for a traditional three-point sermon. The first point, the righteousness of God. Second, the love of God. And third, the face of God. And in hearing these uh, three points arising from just this one verse, uh, it would seem to suggest that uh, even if we weren't finishing a full sermon series on the whole of Psalm 11, perhaps a sermon could be preached on just this one verse. Uh, These three points are very simple, quite familiar, uh, I would imagine, and certainly well worth developing and reflecting upon each one. But the point to see this morning is that this is the conclusion of a sermon series so that we want to see how this final verse of Psalm 11 fits with the teaching of the full psalm. As we've said, Psalm 11 is a psalm of faith, uh, which is to say a psalm by which we can confess our faith, even our faith in Christ, for our great comfort. Remember that the psalmist, who happens here to be King David, David is is not just telling us that in the Lord he takes refuge, but instead he is calling us as well to take refuge in the Lord. But what does that mean? How do you do that? This too is part of his teaching for us in Psalm 11. To take refuge in the Lord is first, as we've heard, to acknowledge your enemies, uh, to acknowledge their taunts against your faith. And if we would say that, uh, well, thankfully, we we, we don't have uh, any enemies at present, well, then we are forgetting our greatest of enemies, the evil one himself. As David pretty much quotes the taunting that he's hearing, the mocking words of his enemies, we can hear the taunts of the evil one. Working through our flesh, Satan would mock us, would discourage us, would, uh, would ultimately bring us to despair. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So secondly, to take refuge in the, in the Lord is to answer the taunts of the evil one with a, with a declaration of what we know about our covenant God in Christ that he is close to us. The Lord is in his holy temple, declares David. Or as Psalm 46 puts it, he is a very present help in trouble. But equally so, even as our God is close to us, yet his throne is in heaven, so that he is both near unto us and reigning high over both us and our enemies. Even more to take refuge in the Lord is to remember that his judgment is coming. The evil one and the wicked of this world are certainly having their day now. But their deeds do not go unseen by our God, and he will judge them most severely and justly in the end. 
And David would even have us call for God's judgment to come so that all evil will be removed forever from his kingdom. The Bible even calls, or the Bible even ends with a call, with this call, as we, as we hear the promise of Christ, that he will come to judge the earth. And as we hear that the Spirit and the Bride, that's us, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. So what's left to say? What's left to do in the matter of taking refuge in the Lord? First, in this further declaration, this further confession of faith, we hear, for the Lord is righteous. So so the first point is the righteousness of God. Whenever we hear it said that... uh, said of God in Scripture that the Lord is righteous, we can, uh, we can hear it as a synonym for His holiness. Uh, this certainly is the case here, that David is declaring and confessing the holiness of God, and he does so, he declares that the Lord is righteous because he has just said something quite striking, that God hates the wicked. And he has just spoken so clearly of the coming judgment of God, even teaching us to call for God's judgment on the wicked. So here, here is the why now. Uh, here is the reason that God hates the wicked and will judge evil uh, in this world. For the Lord is righteous. There are those, of course, who object to this teaching of God's word even more to the idea that God's people should call for His judgment. But if God is good, and as He is the source of all goodness and blessing in the world bestowed upon mankind, and if there truly is an enemy who would disrupt the good purpose of God to shower blessings upon His people, then surely this good God must judge evil. And if we would long for heaven as that place where all sin and death and suffering will be cast out, then we must long for God's judgment to come. As we said last time, there must be a separation. There can be no heaven unless there is a hell. But whenever we hear it said of God in Scripture that the Lord is righteous, we might also hear the meaning that God always does what is right. And of course, this meaning is based upon His holiness. Because He is holy, He is also righteous. He always does what is right. He always acts according to His holiness. And this too explains His judgment But now the word righteous, when it is said that the Lord is righteous, now it becomes a synonym for his faithfulness. Because not only is God the just judge, he is also the God of grace and mercy who enters into covenant with his people, making gracious promises to them. And so it is that we can hear the psalmist in in other psalms crying out to God, saying, in essence, God, where is your righteousness? 
The point is to say, where is your faithfulness? Are you not our righteous God? Which is to say, are you not the God who always does what is right? And is it not the right thing for you to do what you have graciously promised to do for your people? So which is it here? When, when David writes, for the Lord is righteous, it certainly fits with the judgment of God. But as God's people in Christ, as, as those who stand in covenant relationship to God in Christ, as we claim the promises of the gospel, we can certainly confess that the Lord is righteous with a great sense of comfort because there is finally no refuge for us in the Lord, unless he is gracious to us, unless we have his gracious promises, and unless he always does what is right once he has made a promise to us. We might remember that this was Martin Luther's struggle. Whenever he heard, early on, whenever he heard of God's righteousness, he could only understand that that God is holy. And, and Luther was both plagued and blessed with a, a deep conviction for his own sin. He knew that God is holy. He also knew without a doubt that he himself was a sinner. So the righteousness of God was a, was a constant terror to him until, the, until he first came to see that, that the righteousness of God was both his, his ontological righteousness, that, that's the fancy way to say that, that God is righteous in his essential being as God, in other words, that he is holy, but that there is also the righteousness of God that God gives to the sinner, the righteousness that comes from God and is counted to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So why should it be said that Luther was both plagued and blessed with conviction for his sin? Well, because that's the only way to declare and confess that the Lord is righteous and find comfort in such faith. Knowing that God is righteous, that he is holy, we will only deny that God is righteous. So we can only decide for ourselves, well, maybe he's not so holy. Uh, maybe he grades on a curve. Uh, maybe he won't judge the wicked, with me included. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But there is no refuge in maybe. Instead, 1 John 1 says of the righteous God, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, which means that he is righteous. If we confess our sin, he will be righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only can we take refuge, or, or only then can we take refuge in the Lord by saying, the Lord is righteous. Second, then, is the love of God. The second declaration and confession to end Psalm 11 is this. He loves righteous deeds. On several levels, this is a, a rather obvious statement, I think. Uh, if the Lord is righteous, point number one, then it makes sense that God will love righteous deeds. 
Also, if God hates the wicked for their wicked deeds, then he will also love the righteous for their righteous deeds. But where we need to start is with the love of God more generally, we might say. In other words, even as we first considered the ontological righteousness of God, that God is essentially righteous in his being, so we need to start with the ontological love of God, that God is love. That's what, that's what the Apostle John teaches, if you recall in, in 1 John 4, that God is love. And this is indeed, or this is a needed uh, clarification, having heard of God's hatred for sin. God hates the wicked, and yet he is a God of love. Indeed, God is love, as the Apostle teaches us. But just like his righteousness, so his love, we might say, does not stay with him. God is love, but the only way we know that God is love is when he acts in love. This is true, of course, of all God's attributes because he is spirit. He, he is invisible, uh, to name two more of his attributes. But how can you come to know a God who is spirit and invisible? Well, how do others come to know you except by your spirit? except that you are alive and that you can act and and do things and say things that reveal who you are to others around you. Or consider a disembodied spirit, if you want, uh, uh, on a fictional basis. Uh, uh, If there were a ghost or or a spirit in this room right now, how would you know? Except that the spirit did something to make its presence known and by what it did, you would know the character of the spirit, what, what kind of spirit it is, whether good or evil. Well, so it is with God that, that, that we know him by what he does. We might pray to God saying, God, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done. But who God is and what he has done cannot be two things, but must be one and the same for us. Therefore, to say that God is love is really to say that he loves righteous deeds. So think about it this way. First, that God loves his own righteous deeds, or that God loves to do the righteous deeds that he does. Too often, I'm sure you know, this is not true of us. Uh, When we do what is right, we sometimes do it begrudgingly. Well, if I have to, or to save face, or because I'm obligated, or only to, get, only to avoid getting into trouble. But God loves to act in righteousness. He loves to do what is right and good. So furthermore, what this leads us to is God's, really God's love for himself, which is true, but, but it can sound so very wrong to say that God loves himself. It's like saying that God is jealous. Uh, The reason given in the second commandment that we make no image of God uh, but worship him rightly uh, only as he commands, uh, the reason is that he is a jealous God. How can a holy God, a God without sin, be jealous? And how can he love himself? Well, we might point out that God even commands us 
to love ourselves. He commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the point is not that God loves himself uh, in some sinful way, but that he is a good God. And for God not to love himself would be for him not to love what is good. So he loves himself. He loves the good. And naturally, he loves the natural, he loves the righteous deeds that he does. But it must also be clear that God loves the righteous deeds that we do. It pleases God. Scripture even speaks of the pleasure of God. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Scripture even speaks of God rejoicing in his people as they do good and are faithful to him. It pleases God when we obey him, when we honor and serve him. The problem, of course, is that too often we do not obey him. We do not honor and serve him. So are we those who do wicked deeds so to fall under the hatred of God and the judgment of God? Or are we those who do righteous deeds so to be under the love of God? If we are honest, if again we make full confession, we will confess that we are sinners. Which brings us to see that that to hear that the Lord loves righteous deeds is really to hear that God loves his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what we, what we hear, that, uh, that uh, God the Father said of his Son, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we should know that the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, is eternally loved by the Father, So what was the point of this declaration of the father's love for his son? We must see what the son was doing. So to draw from the father this declaration of love, the eternal son, eternally loved by the father, also took to himself the flesh of sinful man. The eternal son became flesh and stepped into the place of God's hatred. The eternal son came to live under the law in a sense to live under his own law and to live without sin. So to achieve and attain that very righteousness that God gives within his plan of salvation. In other words, this is how God gives his own righteousness to his sinful people. By giving his son to live righteously his whole life, and yet to go to the cross, to die under the hatred of God for the sin of his people. And so we can clarify again that that to call for God's judgment upon the wicked is, is not to stand above the wicked, to say that we're better than others, but it is to confess one's own sinfulness, to receive the forgiveness of God and to have righteousness counted to us, even as we call for God's judgment to fall. And such faith needs to come from this understanding that the Lord loves righteous deeds. Not the righteous deeds that I have done in order to be saved, 
but instead the righteous deeds that Christ has done to save me. The Father loves the Son because the Son was obedient. Philippians 2 verse 8 even explains that the reason our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven was because He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we have the last point and the last declaration of faith by which to take refuge in the Lord. The last point is the face of God because the last declaration and confession is the upright shall behold his face. This was true of Christ. Our Savior Jesus was truly the only upright man to walk the face of the earth. And for his obedience, he was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven and there to see again the face of his Father, there to dwell again in the presence of his Father. But the thing is true for you and me, too, as we trust in Christ by his blood and righteousness and through our faith in him as our Savior, we become the upright who behold the face of God. On one hand, we behold the face of God even now meaning we are reconciled to God. Remember the blessing that we often hear at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. The face of God is his grace and blessing to his people. The face of God is His shining face that gives His people peace, which is to say that provides His people refuge. But how can we see it except that we are upright? Christ has reconciled us to God. He alone was upright in His life upon earth, and as we trust in Him, we gain His uprightness, we might say. His righteous deeds are credited to us. And we find the love of God even for all eternity. Once again, Psalm 11 is a psalm that calls us, calls us to take refuge in the Lord. But it takes more than words. It's, it's more than just saying in the Lord, I take refuge. These are great words for a, a plaque in your house somewhere. These are great words to post to your mirror so that you can see them every morning or put on your refrigerator so that you can see them all day. But let us know how, how to take refuge in the Lord. And let us see that it's Christ our Savior who reconciles us to God. He provides us with forgiveness and righteousness so much so, in fact, that we can even say that Christ himself is our refuge. By our faith in him, we can already behold the face of God. And we can look for that day. We can even long for it when we, too, will be exalted to heaven, exalted to the very presence of God, there to behold the very face of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's pray. Grant, O God, that we would take refuge in you, not by some way we invent, and certainly not in some God that we invent. May we take refuge in you by knowing your character, by knowing that you are a God of holiness and of judgment for sin, and yet you are a God of grace and mercy, so that to take refuge in you is to take refuge in Christ. Indeed, to see and believe that Christ himself is our refuge. In his name we pray. Amen.